This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My field, and indeed my topic, is that of rhythm abnormalities of the heart. And as you can tell by the title, I'm going to talk about the current and new emerging uh, techniques and management of uh, arrhythmias. So my goal is pretty simple, to make it interesting. Um, obviously, I spent my life talking, you know, studying and treating people with heart rhythm problems, so I hope I can make it interesting to you. What I'd like to do is give you a few scenarios of different kinds of patients, the way patients come to us. Um, these may be uh, based on symptoms or uh, actually have similarities to what you and your loved ones may be experiencing. Um, obviously, each person is different, and these are just illustrative to so, so you can understand uh, what we're doing and how we evaluate uh, different patients. So let's start with a situation that is rather frequent. Uh, this is a 68-year-old gentleman who develops episodes of dizziness and lightheadedness and without warning has an episode of loss of consciousness. So loss of consciousness is one of the things that in fact is extremely challenging for all physicians. And this is because indeed it has a myriad of causes. And so as we as healthcare professionals evaluate these patients, we indeed have to take under consideration the whole gamut of different possible conditions. So we can consider, as seen on this slide, really a range of different things. And you'll see I put on the top of the list insufficient blood flow to the brain. As we know, I mean, I like to think of the heart as the most important part of the body, but my colleagues will beg to differ and say the brain is, and indeed that's where, you know, controls everything. So when there's not enough blood flow that gets to the brain, we develop a lot of symptoms, and one symptom indeed may be loss of consciousness. So when I put this at the top of the list. Indeed, there are other causes. There may be brain or neurological problems, there may be uh, balance or inner ear kind of problems that exist. So those all may also be causes of these symptoms. There may be medication-related or other kind of toxins that may occur, um, as well as other psychological phenomena and really a miscellaneous number of things. So let's consider a little bit more this particular cause, and that is that of insufficient blood flow. So I'm sure you can think of many reasons why there might be not enough blood flow at one moment in time that could account for someone's symptoms. And indeed, that's what we do as a physician, to account for really what is going on and finding the correct way of evaluating that patient and ultimately managing them so we can get rid of their symptoms. So when we think of this, we start thinking about, well, how does the blood get to the brain? Well, again, I get to talk about the heart, and that is because the heart is what pumps the blood to the brain. 
So indeed, if it's not quite doing its job, people may feel and experience these kinds of symptoms. So we can consider this list of different causes of how you do not get enough blood flow to the brain. And this may be due to the number of things that I've listed here in terms of ways in which the heart is really not able to function adequately to perform this, uh, this task. One of the things I'd like to focus on in this list of different causes, first, is decreased heart rate. This is something that's really pretty easy to understand, because if one doesn't have enough heartbeats to function under the, the circumstances, uh, there's not going to be enough blood flow that gets to the brain, and therefore the patient may, in fact, lose consciousness. So in this kind of situation, we may see something like this. And this is a monitor, so it is a heart monitor, and as I'll mention to you, this is something that your physician or your family member's physician may recommend, a kind of monitor to so-called catch it red-handed. That is, to really find out, well, when someone is having symptoms, what is going on in terms of the heart rhythm. And here we have a rather spectacular example. I've taken little hearts to sort of indicate where the heartbeats are. And as you can see here, well, there don't seem to be too many. And so you see that there are long periods in which there, the heart is, ha, has a decreased heart rate. And so again, it's pretty understandable why that could result in a symptom like dizziness or even loss of consciousness. And we've been lucky in our, you know, our field, as you very much know, to have a, a device that now is pretty commonplace, um, over 100,000 are pl implanted every year, called a pacemaker. So you probably know people who, in fact, have received pacemakers. And it is, in some ways, a miraculous device because you're going from the picture that I've shown to you of the pause being very long to having a really normal beat. And so this is a little diagram of what a pacemaker kind of looks like and how it gets placed. It gets placed by putting these things we call leads, which are little kind of wires that go into the vein under the collarbone and then go into the appropriate heart chambers. And by doing that, they can get information from the heart to tell it what, in fact, the heart rhythm is, and in particular, whether the heart rate is fast enough or not. If it is not fast enough, it simply says, okay, I'm, I'm called upon to do my work, which is to put an extra beat in. And by putting a pretty minute electrical impulse in, it's able to stimulate the heart and cause an extra beat. And by doing that, it can make sure that the heart rate never drops down to that period where it gets really slow, and it can maintain the heart rate to be very adequate for your uh, needs. As I mentioned, pacemakers are designed to prevent the heartbeat from going uh, too slow. But you might say, well, that's all and good, but you know, when I exercise, my heart rate goes up and down as I do things. And when you start to first think about it, you sort of say, well, gee, that sounds like something that a device might not be able to do. Because how is it going to know when it should be more active and less active? You know, our body knows, certainly, but how is it going to know? Well, again, we're fortunate to have a medical device industry that has, you know, gone into the engineering kind of laboratories and created these things called sensors. And these are various kinds of electronic equipment uh, built into the pacemaker that senses various things that will give it an idea of how much activity the patient's doing at the time. So when you're doing more things, you're doing some yard work or doing things around the house and more active, the heart rate will start to pick up. And then as you stop and rest, 
the heart rate will drift back down to a resting kind of level. As I mentioned, you're meeting the needs of the patient metabolically, that is, it's your functional needs, as well as preventing dizziness and loss of consciousness. One thing that I've mentioned to you is this challenge of determining what is the cause of loss of, con loss of consciousness. And I've listed for you this long list, and there are many, many more pages to come, I mean, in terms of different causes. Um, and therefore, what we're trying to create at Stanford is a collaborative effort between neurologists, internists, and cardiologists in being able to uh, share information as appropriate, see the same patient, and to be able to sometimes really put a team effort into this to find out, in particularly difficult cases, uh, what in fact the causes are. So I think it's an important kind of strategy and one that lends itself to this kind of a problem in many cases. So let's take another kind of patient. Um, again, someone, this might remind you of somebody you know. This is a 68-year-old woman who had had a heart attack about eight years before. However, more recently, over the last year or so, she's had a greater and greater difficult time in terms of the amount of exertion she can do. So exertional limitation that has gotten worse over this period of time. And really now, get short of breath, really at relatively short distances. So there's been a progressive nature of what's gone on. Now this can be from a number of kind of different causes. And so one of the things we consider is again going back to the heart and considering how it's in fact functioning. So one of the assessments that your physician may do uh, is to assess how is the heart functioning. In what way is it working? That is, is it, how efficient is it overall? And that gives one a good sense, is this likely to be the cause of the person's limitation now? So in this case, in fact, there was evidence of significant impairment of heart function overall. In addition, as you know, we use electrocardiogram as a pretty routine part of evaluation of the patient. And in fact, this uh, patient's physician noted that it's taking a little longer to get from one side of the heart to the other side of the heart. So it's like going from your front door to your back door of your house. Well, it can take you know, a short period of time or it can take you an awful long time to get from one side to the other. And that is sometimes the case and something that's pretty easy to pick up even on a routine electrocardiogram that it takes just about a few minutes in the office to do. So this is the kind of scenario I'd like to paint for you in terms of the kind of challenges that are presented. So one of the approaches that has been that introduced recently, so this is a pretty new kind of technology. I would say not all physicians yet really are aware of this ability. And so it's new and something that really, I think, fits into the new emerging uh, kind of part of this talk. And it starts with this idea and this little uh, picture here of the heart and the different heart chambers, and we can consider, in fact, that there might be a delay from one side of the heart to the other. The question is, what can you do about that? You say, well, this exists, but is there something you can do? Well, again, if you could take some relatively simple things that we know how to do and could make it to help this kind of problem, that would be really terrific. So people got an idea. They got the idea that if you used what I've talked to you already about, people said, well, how could we maybe treat these patients and make their life a little better? Well, maybe we could stimulate the two sides of the heart. Well, why would that be of help? 
Well, the idea was that if in fact your heart is taking a good amount of time to get from one side to the other, the pumping function isn't very coordinated. You start on one side, it pumps, and the other side starts after. So you get this one and a two. That may be a good dance step, but in terms, in terms of your heart, well, you're not really getting the contraction you necessarily need. So they had this pretty simple idea that if you pace both sides of the heart at roughly the same time and bring them together, that you could improve the, the efficiency. So it's a little bit like tuning your car or sending it for a tune-up to get it to be a little more efficient. You're not changing the heart immediately, but you're making it a little more efficient in how it operates. And people found that actually this was a pretty nice way of doing things. Just by able to do this, they were able to increase the exertional capacity of many patients and decrease their shortness of breath. So a relatively simple thing for patients uh, using essentially the technology we already had uh, and to be able to accomplish this. So again, quite a nice thing to be able to do um, and for us to offer to patients. But again, falls onto the relatively new uh, kind of uh, situation. So what kind of people would maybe benefit from this? People who have significant impairment or heart function, possibly due to a heart attack or other causes. Uh, people who have enlargement of the heart, and that is that gradually it's gotten bigger and bigger, uh, this delay in conduction overall, and having this functional limitation of really not being able to do really what they would otherwise anticipate being able to do. So that's the kind of person, the kind of patient who would be a candidate, you could say, or somebody who uh, you might select this kind of newer therapy for. And this is a, just an example of a diagram of how we go about doing this. This is a, technically a little more challenging than putting in a standard pacemaker um, because we have to put it into this little tiny vein that goes on the outside of the heart. But to get that contraction, uh, that's what's necessary. So we'll go back to another kind of patient, uh, in fact, who uh, has had some dizziness and has lost consciousness. As I mentioned to you from the outstart, we do have this problem of so many different causes. And so we do have to look under a lot of rocks sometimes to figure out what the solution is and what the cause of it may be. So unlike the first person that I kind of described to you who had a slow heart rate, it's possible to have a very fast heart rate that can cause not enough blood flow. When one first thinks about that, you sort of say, that doesn't seem right. I mean, if you have a little bit of heart rate, wouldn't a little bit more be better? You know, that, that really makes, you know, a lot of sense. Well, there's a point to where you really are going far beyond what your body needs in terms of the metabolic demands at the time. And so what happens is that the body is not even able to get the blood over to the right chamber fast enough. And so you're actually, your output really drops. So there is a point where it could be too fast for your metabolic needs, and this is caused by an a rhythm problem uh, in one of the two, you know, the upper or lower chambers. So when we consider this, we have to go back to this kind of idea of distinguishing what the cause is. Well, it sometimes is just a matter of, well, we want to treat somebody with this or this. In other cases, it turns out to be whether it's, it's something that's very serious and potentially even life-threatening, or it's something rather benign as a cause of passing out. Again, this is particularly challenging because there are so many different causes, and this is such a common problem. 
And so we really have to get some clues as to whether uh, this is something particularly serious or not. So when I talk to groups like this, I emphasize it really needs to be checked out by a physician. So if you say to yourself, gee, should I go to the doctor? I've had these spells. I would urge you, yes, please contact your primary care physician. You know, have that uh, him or her evaluate you to see whether they think it's something serious or something that's not serious. So as a physician, what we need to do is we need to listen to the patient carefully. And in fact, the history is a very key component in analyzing what the cause is for this given patient. And so we start by taking a history, listening to the patient. We look for abnormalities of heart function. That turns out to be crucial because patients who have are more and more serious heart impairment are more likely to have the more serious rhythm problem, as you might guess. And so we would then turn to other tasks or other methods of evaluating, such as the monitor that I described to you earlier, that we often would ask our patients to wear a monitor to try to capture their rhythm and see, in fact, what their rhythm is at the time, either of symptoms or sometimes just by random, you know, for a 24-hour uh, period of time. So there are useful tools that we can get a handle on, is it more likely to be this cause or that cause? Okay. And as I mentioned to you, you would want to anticipate that your physician is going to order a number of tests. And they will, occur, they will consist of the standard electrocardiogram, you know, that you can do simply in the office, something like an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. This is a safe uh, test. Um, very similar to the idea of, you know, uh, uh, when you look at um, ultrasounds in pregnancy and that kind of thing. Uh, and this is an ultrasound to look at the heart function. It looks at the valve function, the valve's opening and closing, and gives us a very good idea of how, again, how efficient it is working and whether we have a problem uh, with its function. In selected circumstances, your doctor may say that you should have something that is like a stress test. And there a couple different types of stress tests. There may be one where you will be asked actually to exercise. Go on a bicycle or more commonly a treadmill and walk for a period of time while you're monitored and maybe even pictures are taken with a camera or an ultrasound. The other alternative, particularly for people who have orthopedic problems or otherwise limited, is to have an intravenous placed and to have a certain kind of medication that in fact allows the uh, imaging to occur as well without actual exercise. So it doesn't always have to be exercise. They're all alternatives to this. But in selected cases, your physician might say, oh, this would be the kind of thing I'm going to recommend to you. Monitoring the rhythm, there are several different choices. A uh, very common thing would be a device like this, which is typically a, you know, about the size of a beeper, that kind of thing. There are some other models that are used as well that basically allows you to wear this while you have the symptoms. So this is a kind of transient monitor, a monitor to catch, I should say, transient phenomena, that is, ones while you have symptoms, and therefore might give great insight into the kind of cause, whether it's a fast or a slow uh, heart rhythm. There are other kinds of monitors, as I've described, that are only for 24 hours, and there's even a kind of implantable monitor that can be implanted for roughly about 12 to 14 months for patients that have 
infrequent symptoms that you say, well, you're telling me, doctor, to wear a monitor, but I don't have these symptoms very often. There's no way it's going to show anything. And for that patient, particularly if they've had troubling injury or something, a very dramatic episode, we would consider, after we've done other tests, implanting a monitor so that in the next six months, if an episode happens, that in fact the device will capture it uh, while, because it's implanted in the patient. In this talk, you'll hear me talk about things that are not as serious and things that are very serious. Well, one of the things that I need to tell you about is something that I again tell all groups like this, and that is that we have in my kind of area one of the number one problems or health problems our country is facing. And it's something, honestly, that when I go to groups like this, I, I have to say that most people have never heard about this. And this is something called sudden death. And what it means is that people can suddenly collapse and have a life-threatening rhythm problem. You know, again, not something I think we want to talk about. You know, it's not a favorite dinner, dinner table conversation, I must say. But in fact, this is something that's happening throughout our country. Um, uh, a gentleman that I met and who, who is a survivor, that is, he was resuscitated, and I'll explain to you how he got resuscitated. He likes to describe, to, when he goes out and talks to groups, he's a layperson, he says, it's like you listen, you turn on the TV and you listen to the news. Two 747s crashed today. Well, that's how many people die in America uh, of this problem every day. Two airplanes worth of people who are dying every day. Now, our field has tried to approach this. And one of the ways of doing this is to provide a security blanket. And one of the kinds of devices that we use pretty routinely at this point is called an implantable defibrillator. Well, these are devices that are implanted very similar to the way a pacemaker is implanted, and it waits and watches like a rescue team and gives the person a jolt when they need it. And otherwise, it's really just there to watch and make sure things are okay. But there are several new trials, and by new, I mean really new. In the last couple months, we've gotten more information about this kind of condition. So what we've amassed as a field is information about who would benefit from having a defibrillator. So we know a lot about who would benefit, but this is additional information. So patients who have had heart attack, who have decreased heart function of a certain range. Now, one of the things that I, again, recommend that lay people uh, start asking their, patient, their doctors, uh, I think most uh, you know, patients ask their, their doctors, well, what's my blood pressure? And that would be a common question to ask. Uh, they also ask them, well, what's my cholesterol? That's a common question to ask. So what I'm asking, each and every one of you, if you have loved ones and, uh, that have had a heart attack, the next question you should ask your doctor, what is the ejection fraction? An ejection fraction is a simple, uh, routinely obtained uh, index, sort of like the blood pressure, uh, using something like an echocardiogram to see how much pumping function there is. And when it gets down to a certain range, this is when people are felt to be at a higher risk to having such a problem. The other major way of doing this is, in fact, to have adequate response. And so one of the things that I'll urge you is that when every, you know, nowadays in your community and every, you know, city council, they're looking for ways to uh, cut dollars and they're looking at your EMS service and they want to take away some ambulance service, don't let them. So you go there and you vote and make sure that your EMS services are not cut back because this is how people are going to survive. 
Okay, so that's one thing you can do to play a role in your community to make sure there's adequate response. The other thing you can do is you can ask, and you've got to remember three letters, so it's a little hard. Automatic external defibrillator, AED. So you've got to remember those three letters. That's not, not easy. So AED, you remember those three letters, automatic external defibrillator. Why am I telling you to remember that? That's the next best way to make sure more Americans are alive as a result of being resuscitated from this kind of condition. If for those of you who travel, you may see in your airports, uh, every major airport in America and every airline in America has AEDs on every airplane and throughout the airport, roughly every two minutes apart in the airport. And you'll see this little lightning bolt sign that is, indicates that they have an AED there. But what I'm going to ask you is to go into your communities, your civic centers, uh, your uh, large stadiums, uh, large areas of congregation where people get together, fitness clubs, all those kind of things, should have an AED. So I'm going to ask you tonight to you know, pledge to me to say, I'm going to go and ask in my community, do we have an AED? And do people know how, where it is and how to use it? So that's what you can do tonight. And when you go you know, out in your communities tomorrow of improving survival of this really critical problem. So let me turn to something not quite as you know, uh, deep, I guess you'd say. So this is a patient who uh, had a 40-year-old woman who had a racing heart sensation. Now this is getting close to home because many people do have you know, kind of extra heartbeats and that kind of thing. And so she had a particularly rapid one, going about 180 beats per minute, had needed to go to the emergency department to be treated, even get some special medication intravenously. And this has happened several times before. So this is a kind of condition um, that fits into the category of arrhythmia, and we call something called supraventricular tachycardia. Uh, that's the most common cause of this on a statistical basis. And this is the kind of thing that I've drawn in a little area, this like a little loop kind of thing, where the pathway is taking a certain kind of uh, circular motion. I call it a racetrack. It's driving around like a little car on a racetrack. And so one needs to interrupt that. And you can do that with medications. Um, and you can do it with a special catheter-based technique, which is, again, relatively new, although this has been around for over a decade, um, in which we take a plastic tube, find the area within the heart, putting it up through the veins or arteries, and zap the area responsible for it so it doesn't come back again. Really, so you don't, one doesn't need to take medications for this kind of uh, condition. So that's called supraventricular tachycardia. It tells you that there are many ways to treat things with medications or procedures like this. And again, this is a pretty kind of common uh, kind of condition. Okay. Now, that doesn't describe all the rhythm kind of problems. And in particular, I'd say the most common rhythm problem. And that's of irregular heartbeats. Now, some irregular heartbeats are just every so often, like a couple beats here or there. By and large, pretty benign, not something to get too concerned about. Your doctor may want to do an electrocardiogram, that kind of thing, uh, physical exam history. But some people have irregularity for quite some time. It's just jumping around, and it continues. And so what we're looking for there, and again, this is the importance of getting a monitor to monitor what the rhythm is during that time, it may be something called atrial fibrillation. Now, I would say that if I wagered that someone in this room has atrial fibrillation, I think I have a good chance of winning because it's really a very common kind of uh, problem. 
And so this is the kind of situation where, in fact, unlike our previous picture, where there's one little area that circles around, there's these swirling areas in the upper chamber that can cause this kind of rhythm problem. One of the concerns, particularly as we age, that the risk of stroke goes up. And so that, indeed, is probably the single most important reason to identify the presence of atrial fibrillation, because of the potential risk of this being a cause of stroke. Now, why you know, could this possibly cause stroke? You say, well, this is the heart, that's the brain, what's going on? Well, it turns out that because the electrical signal is swirling around, you don't get the normal, nice, coordinated contraction you know, that we all have otherwise. And when it, doesn't, when it loses that vigorous contraction, there are parts of the upper chamber, the atria, that can, go, that can create clots. And I like to use the analogy, you have a little pond outside your house, and the stream isn't so good, and so you get little areas of stagnation. And so that's very similar to what happens in terms of blood flow, that you don't have that contraction to keep it, the blood flow moving, and therefore you can develop these areas that may turn into clots. And those clots, when they go to the brain, um, can be the cause of stroke. So indeed, that is really probably the most important reason to recognize this condition, is to, to find out whether there are ways to prevent stroke in that patient. The other issue is that sometimes the, the rate can be particularly rapid. You may need medications to control the rate, the number of beats that get, go from the upper chamber to the lower chamber, which determines the pulse rate. Um, and in selected circumstances, patients may need to be converted, either with medications or electrical paddles to convert the rhythm back to normal, and that may be necessary. And in even fewer number of cases, there may be this kind of zapping technique I called catheter ablation that in fact may be used for this kind of condition. As I mentioned too, I would want to talk about some of the kind of new emerging kind of things as well. And one of them, and I'll, I'll describe a few of them, uh, is the treatment of atrial fibrillation with catheter-based techniques is an evolving uh, kind of process. And we do have ways, and these little dots are these little zapping areas, so there's a lot of them, um, in terms of uh, how to go about doing it. There are also new ways of trying to treat problems. Uh, we actually um, have been working also with this uh, freezing little areas of the heart called cryoablation as a, cause, as a technique. And something for the future is shown by this kind of futuristic diagram that robots, robotic equipment can be used to control these special catheters that we call uh, that can be used to treat these rhythm problems um, basically uh, just through um, uh, an access point of the vein or the artery. So that takes me really to this idea that in fact um, there is a lot of room for innovation. I've sort of shared with you this idea that we've come from a period of time when we had relatively simple choices to now where there's more and more choices every day of how we can go about treating patients. And so one of the things I wanted to share with you is that this is a big initiative at Stanford. Uh, we particularly in the arrhythmia section as well as many parts of cardiology are very much involved with our engineering colleagues uh, at Stanford, uh, the bioengineering department, a program called BioDesign, uh, uh, to be able to in fact develop some of these advances as well as train our future leaders in these uh, areas. So 
I just wanted to really close with that and really to tell you again that we've talked about new ways of diagnosis. There have been new clinical studies providing new information about how to treat these things. Again, um, this is an area where more and more of that information is getting out to the general public overall. And as I talked about, remember your jobs. Remember to go back in your communities care about health care, care about what services your community provides. Uh, you're, you all remember the three letters, AED, Automatic External Defibrillator. You're going to ask about that. Um, I ask you to, as you, you all are leaders in this, you're involved in your health, you're becoming educated about your health, learning about what uh, is, uh, how things work, and so that's really what I you know, think is important. So with that, I'd like to close. I'd like to thank every one of you for coming tonight, and I'd be very delighted to take your questions. Thank you. How does a doctor determine whether uh, ingestion of certain different kind of things could be causing the problem? Now, I have to tell you, as we said, we try to listen to the patient, and that's a big, you know, I make a big deal out of it when I talk to the patient, of trying to understand what they're trying to tell us. And so that's both what they do tell us and what they don't tell us. And so you've got to get some idea, really, you know, are they leveling with you and are there something missing? And obviously, if you have a spouse and luck enough to have a spouse with you, you can sort of go over to the spouse and say, tell them that's the truth, you know. And so that's often a good way to get some good information about it as well. As far as the stimulants, yes, indeed, um, um, change in hormones uh, around menstrual cycles, that's a big deal. Menopause can be, you know, very much related to arrhythmias. Uh, hormone supplementation as well. Um, other agents, uh, caffeine, for example, alcohol to some extent as well, um, other kind of different things that you mentioned, uh, can, for individual patients, uh, play a role. Is the atrial fibrillation, the problem of the upper chambers where things swirl around rather than take a certain path, is that an electrical problem? So you're asking an electrician. So I will say at the face value, it is electrical problem. But by and large, electrical problems are caused by certain other things going on in the heart. And so there may be things that certainly your doctors want to look at that could be causing it overall. And indeed, aging alone makes some changes in the heart that makes it much more likely for a patient to go into atrial fibrillation. People may have uh, short periods of time where they lose consciousness. Uh, sometimes, I guess, uh, doctors may have called it a stroke or that kind of thing. That, that's, a, that's a complex area. I mean, that's a very good question. It's a complex area. We've touched upon some of the arrhythmic causes of loss of consciousness. But as I mentioned, we have to be careful that we're not being too narrow in our thinking. Um, and that's why we have to bring in some other colleagues and say, look, is there something else going on? And so one needs to look pretty broadly. We do get some clues behind it. Um, again, the monitor is useful. And so we get some idea of which way to go about evaluating it. What energy sources are used in these implantable devices that, you know, again, are going to last quite a while? So there are a variety of them. The industry has developed them. The basic one for pacemakers is lithium iodide. There's sodium vanadium pentoxide. It's used for defibrillators. So they're, you know, advanced chemistry that I don't understand, but they really work well. If you go to a, a cardiologist uh, who's a heart specialist uh, and you are they're evaluated, um, are there things that they may not be, in, you know, uh, recommending or evaluating, et cetera? That's always a tough call because, uh, bless you. So as I, you know, kind of indicated, my philosophy in general, you've got to start at the base of the pyramid. An internist should see you because, you know, we don't know what the problem is in the end necessarily. 
a cardiologist should see you. And if they decide this is a complicated area, you know, that kind of thing that requires some additional kind of treatment options, then they should send you to somebody like me who specializes in rhythm problems. Now, obviously, the patient may say, well, gee, I, I want somebody else. I want another opinion or, you know, I like some other evaluations. I've heard about different options. Is that something you could send me to one of these people? You know, that kind of thing. So um, it's, uh, that's typically how I recommend things go. What are the symptoms of a defective heart valve and how does that relate to the rhythm? Um, the, there can be a lot of symptoms of heart valves. Uh, usually it's related to functional loss, that is people can't do as much, but it could even be loss of consciousness in some cases and those kind of things, edema, shortness of breath, those kind of symptoms. And they can actually cause arrhythmias as well. Certain valves are more likely to cause it than others, but indeed it can happen. How long has electrophysiology really been around? It's roughly about 20 years. Uh, you know, if you sort of look at the modern day, what we do, I mean, it's evolved tremendously, but it is sort of ex has existed as a field for roughly 20 years, is a rough number. What are the different factors in making ablation more and more viable? It depends a lot on what the problem is. Um, that is, I would have to say, many forms of ablation, it's good to use what we used 10 years ago, really. It's, it's pretty, pretty good. And, but for other ones, you sort of need, honestly, we need things that haven't been made yet because it's, the problem is so challenging. So there's a whole spectrum of sophistication that's required in terms of the equipment you use. What makes the electrical kind of thing? This is a really tough question to answer. Uh, basically, the, the heart has its own mm, uh, ion channels that basically cause a certain sequence of events. It's like the domino thing. When you, one domino goes doo -doo -doo -doo. And so basically there are little channels that sort of do the starting mechanism and then cause it to regulate itself and they respond really well to our heart rhythm and all those kind of things. So it's a, it's a good question. So the question is in those diagrams where that little arrows that go sort of the, kind of all these places, they're going the wrong place. So what's happening is it's like you got, you know, uh, something that's come in your house and taken over because essentially you should be running off your own kind of pacemaker that's doing this, but instead this other thing that's come in is running your life basically. And that's the, the difficulty. You need to sort of take it back in some cases and have control overall. So it's really the, a new rhythm takes over. You know, a patient comes in and says, I had these symptoms. Hmm, I was pretty worried. I got to the doctor. I didn't have them anymore. And then they put this monitor on me and I got these other things. And they say, well, you have this problem. It's sometimes really hard to tell. And I'm particularly cautious about saying, now we have the answer. Until you really have it documented where you can get those symptoms you had the first time and I have it on a monitor, I really can't say with 100% certainty that's what the rhythm is. And so we really try to... You know, it sounds like we're working over the patient, but we tell you to go back and do it over and over again. And there are different ways to approach that, so it's, it's tolerable to you. So those are good questions. So he had a study, an MRI scan, in which they had to inject some stuff and that kind of thing. Could that have precipitated? There are a lot of things. One of the things that I mentioned about the body is it's all one body. We're all linked together. All the parts are linked. So if you do one thing to one part of the body, it can do something to the rest. I mean, that sort of makes some sense. So indeed, you can have situations where one thing, you know, kind of sets things off. So the questions are, one, about eating itself, and then also about sleep. So again, comes back to the theme, our bodies connected. I mean, our whole body is one thing. So when you perturb much of anything, particularly the sleep situation, that's a very common situation. Now, you know, I see sometimes it's a 
It's a college student who's you know, pulling an you know, overnight kind of studying thing. It could be somebody who's traveling and just not quite their sleep habits are a little off, or it could be something else going on in your life uh, that can disturb it. And yes, that tends to precipitate a little more arrhythmias. And I tell people, be a little more careful about it. As far as eating, I mean, luckily, that's rare. I mean, because everybody eats. And so a good thing, we don't get arrhythmias every time we eat. But so it is a rare thing. I've definitely, I've seen it with swallowing. I've seen it with, I mean, you know, you've been around, you see everything. So, but there are people, but it's not very common, luckily. Beta blockers. So beta blockers have been around a long time. You know, millions of patients are on beta blockers. They're used for a variety of problems, high blood pressure, various heart kind of problems, particularly serious ones. Um, and so a lot of people need them. They need them really badly. Now, one of the things that we always get alerted to is it, is it lowering the heart too much, this heart rate too much. And so that's usually a dose issue. Some people can't tolerate any, but it's usually they can tolerate some. And it just has to be adjusted overall. Is it protective? It depends on the heart situation. Uh, in some cases, absolutely. So people who have had heart attacks, for example, they're the people most likely to be on beta blockers. In general, we try to keep them on it if we can, if the heart rate isn't too bad and too slow and that kind of thing. If you have premature ventricular beats, the lower chamber beats, is that a particularly dangerous thing? Does it suggest that you have a problem? So again, I you know, go back to the simple things that we've already talked about, the electrocardiogram, the echocardiogram, and selectively a stress test. Those are pretty simple things that, you know, I think really we can get pretty easily, and that starts our evaluation. Now, Attached to that very immediately is a history, and a good history of what kind of symptoms a patient has, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, for patients who have normal heart function, have normal electrocardiograms, and have absolutely no symptoms, and they have a family history is fine, it's unlikely to be life-threatening. It truly is. Uh, you can't say never, you know, okay, and that's why you go to a physician for them to tell it. You don't listen to me not knowing your situation, so you go to your physician, and they can evaluate it. Great questions about the present and the future in terms of this zapping technique called catheter ablation. What are the different modalities available? So it's a moving target. Thank goodness it is. I mean, we're able to get more and more newer and better ways of finding where the heart rhythm is. You know, obviously we at Stanford are very privileged. We have a lot of access to a lot of these things. So we can offer all those different strategies. And so, you know, a lot of them, you know, obviously we're hoping to help develop too. So it's, um, it's a whole spectrum of things. There are a lot of other energy sources, ultrasound, microwave, all those kind of things are being evaluated, laser as well. If you have a nuclear stress test, it's, it's not a nuclear, it doesn't explode or anything, but it's a radionuclide stress test and an echo test, do they kind of override one another? It's an interpretation matter. They're trying to get at the same kind of functional information through two different imaging techniques. And so usually, like any time you have that, you've got to look at both. And you've got to make some decision, why does one show something different than the other, if they're different? If they're the same, you say, great, they're the same. There was actually a Wall Street Journal article that described a new technique. You know, they actually sometimes get the new techniques before they, it comes into the medical literature. But indeed, um, there are a, a variety of other surgical techniques, and I, I was you know, really absent in, in terms of not mentioning those, um, that are trying to do some of the similar kind of things for treatment of atrial fibrillation as people from the catheter-based technique. And that's an evolution as well, particularly done minimally invasively. Uh, that's obviously would be ideal uh, through little ports or that kind of thing, but it's pretty early as well. They're both evolving kind of in parallel paths in terms of new techniques. So I think they all have something to offer. It's just I can't, no one really knows at the present time, oh, is this better than this? We really don't know. There are pros and cons.
So the question is if they, you do get a catheter ablation and they don't get all of it, they get part of it, say 70%, what happens? So it depends a lot on what the rhythm is and what the problems are, what's been tried before. So you're really, uh, as many parts as of the kind of process, one needs to tailor that to the patient and sort of say, well, then we need to try medicines that we previously tried, but now might be more effective since you've had an ablation, et cetera, and there may be other kinds of ablation that you can use instead. How frequent is it, particularly with age, and is there a familial nature? There's no question there's some familial nature. We just don't understand well enough what the basis of that is. Um, it is definitely true that the uh, incident goes up with age. Even um, at age 75 and above, I think it goes five to 10% of the US population. Certainly by 80, it's really gotten, gone up. So there's a definitely a very significant, very steep increase in with age. Normal ejection fraction, actually, I can't go into it, is calculated to be about 60% at rest. And so that's the typical range. So really, you're looking for something in that kind of situation. PVCs are very common. People have done studies and taken normal people and you wear a monitor, and many people will have them. So their existence by themselves is not, uh, doesn't mean it's dangerous. Is there a relation between frequent surges in heart rate and premature atrial contractions? Uh, again, that's the whole thing of the bodies tied in together. So there may be. Uh, autonomic changes can be related to premature beats. Uh, there are a whole bunch of things that can cause premature beats, you know, like that. Autonomic filling kind of things when you change posture, all those kind of things as well. The question relates to if you go through a sequence of treatments, the, car the shock treatment, et cetera, when do you move on to other treatments like this catheter ablation? And so it's a very individual thing, honestly. And that's, again, why one can't really generalize. Um, but typically we would try a number of medications, you know, this one and that, see how well they're tolerated and all that kind of thing, and then make some decisions about what's, whether going to catheter ablation is sensible at this point or, or not. So can stress tests bring on arrhythmias? As I sort of indicated, almost anything can bring on arrhythmias, in particular changes in exertion, particularly extreme kind of situations, absolutely. Can I talk about WPW, rapid heart rhythm, et cetera? So there is something that's picked up on the routine electrocardiogram called WPW, <coughs> Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, that indicates an extra connection and one of those examples of the racetrack kind of arrhythmia. And so that you know, results in a particular kind of treatment with certain medications or the catheter ablation technique as well. So if you have a pacemaker and you set it, for example, 60 to 110, what's the use of a defibrillator? So the defibrillator is that special device that acts if an abnormal heart rhythm just takes off and creates a life-threatening situation for a fast rhythm. A pacemaker simply keeps the heart rate from getting too slow. So it's really working on the two ends. And so that's, that's the basic kind of a situation. It's a more life-threatening arrhythmia that you're treating with a defibrillator. The question is if the heart's tired, has extra skip beats, et cetera, what should you think about? And so again, I always recommend going back to the basic things, trying to evaluate the overall patient overall and making sure whether the heart function's normal, et cetera. And that's going to really make a big difference in determining how serious it is. Is something, wow, we really got a big problem or it's relatively benign and it's really not the heart at all. Good question. So microwaves and pacemakers, you really don't have to worry about them. Unfortunately, the medical technology, I mean, certainly non-medical non technology is very rapid. So they are always coming out with something else that can interfere as well but luckily there are very few. So in atrial fibrillation, what heart rate does it become an emergency? Now the upper chambers are going many hundreds of beats per minute, it's just the lower is not going quite as fast. So it's very hard to say a specific cutoff, but obviously very, very rapid rates are particularly a concern that can cause more likely to cause chest pain, shortness of breath, dizziness, or loss of consciousness. So as you really take off, that would
would be a major issue. Great question. So again, as you can tell, I, I support this idea that the body is all related and what's the role of stress. As I mentioned, it can play a big role. And so I encourage people to take simple, ta you know, we can use medications and I think that's great. And I use them extensively, as you can tell. But I also tell people, you know, look in your own life, try to decide, can you de-stress? Can you do some of these things? Get rid of some of the stimulants, all those kind of things as well. What's a normal rate for an infant? And then when does it sort of, uh, you know, change? It's a gradual change, but obviously it's particularly rapid, you know, when people, uh, you know, the infants in that kind of uh, period of time. Um, and then really as people go into teenage and that kind of range, it becomes much closer to adult kind of situation. I'm not a pediatric cardiologist, so honestly I can't tell you a lot more in terms of detail. For what patients is it an alternative or a you know, substitute in some cases to medication? Depends a lot on the, the condition you're dealing with, the likely percentage of that. Certainly the supraventricular tachycardias, the success rate is very high. 90% of patients, uh, or, or even potentially more, can be off medications long term. For atrial fibrillation, because it's not as uh, worked out a kind of condition, people are going to be on some medications in many cases. Can PVCs ever be a, an indicator of a problem? And I, I use the word indicator, I know you didn't use that word, but the, really the question is, is it a mm, clue? to say, oh, look at this patient. And I, I would argue, yes, you should do an electrocardiogram, you should do an echocardiogram, you should make it a point of investigating that patient and basically reassuring the patient to say, no, you, you know, things look good for you. What symptoms are really most worrisome? And so in some ways that's an easy question, in some ways that's a hard question. Well, clearly if you're passing out, that's not very good. If you, you know, have dizzy spells, that's probably not too good either. If you have unexplained shortness of breath, all those things, there really should be an evaluation, et cetera. You know, a, a skip beat, that kind of thing, I can't get too worked up about that. You know, just one beat, you know, okay. You know, that kind of thing. So you're looking for pretty, you know, significant symptoms by and large, you know, overall. But again, it's... So it's really a severity as much as anything. But again, your doctor is going to want to evaluate that situation and figure out, well, why are you having these things? What could have been going on? You may have been told that to do certain maneuvers when you have a fast rot rhythm, put your head between your feet or, in fact, press on your neck. I don't recommend either one. <laughs> so first of all, one needs to determine what your, what your condition is. If in fact it's a supraventricular tachycardia, that's what I would guess in this situation, that you can do other things. Bear down like you're having a bowel movement, called a Valsalva maneuver is one maneuver. I recommend you not do that standing up, but lying down so you don't pass out. Um, but there aren't a lot of things you could do, unfortunately. Um, but indeed, your doctor would then go through with you and talk to you about what particularly you might do. Because for many other rhythms, that's worthless, and you, I wouldn't recommend you try it at all. Thank you very much. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.